The scripture lesson today is taken from the 17th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. And he, as he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we make our prayer. Amen. So on his way to Jerusalem to face arrest, trial, and crucifixion, Jesus encounters ten lepers. While we normally think of these ten as people struck with an incurable disease that destroys and disfigures their flesh, is contagious, and ultimately leads to their death, these ten more than likely are afflicted with a more general skin disease, serious to be sure, but possibly not fatal, as evidenced by the fact that they have not been quarantined in a colony. They approach Jesus and call out to him for mercy. It is the same mercy of which Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, sing. It is the same mercy with which Dives calls out to Father Abraham, And a blind man on the road to Jericho calls out to Jesus. The call for mercy is universal. Jesus has heard it before. He will hear it again. He has spoken of it in parables. And he hears it from these ten as he journeys to Jerusalem. When Jesus sees them, He tells them to go and show themselves to the priests, presumably in Jerusalem, for presumably they are Jewish. Along the way to the priests, the ten are made clean, which simply means that their condition ends and they are therefore eligible to be declared ritually pure, something that Jews were required to do whenever they had or faced any number of infirmities, Illnesses, normal bodily discharges, or functions. We next learn that when one of the ten sees that he has been healed, 
he turns back, praises God with the same loud voice with which all ten had called out to Jesus. He throws himself at Jesus' feet in an act of worship. And then he gives thanks. Now the narrator of this event, of this event, the gospel writer Luke, then adds almost parenthetically that the one who returns and praises God, praises God is a Samaritan, a descendant of those Jews who had been carried off into exile 700 years earlier, who had intermarried and who therefore were considered of mixed race and mixed religion, rarely accepted by either Jews or Gentiles. Jesus comments to his disciples, was it only this foreigner, only this person from the outside, only this person who's not a part of the covenant, who returned to give God praise? And then Jesus comments to the one man, go on your way, for your faith has made you well. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has saved you. Now there are several ways to understand this episode in the Gospel of Luke. Each way is more or less consistent, certainly with Jesus' larger purpose in the gospel. And none of these is really in conflict with one another. But I want us to look at, at several of these ways. One way is to say that this Samaritan leper is one of four people in Luke who are made well and promised salvation largely because of their faith. The others being a woman who loved much, another woman who reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and a blind man. It is clear that part of the understanding of who Jesus is involves giving ourselves to and trusting the healing and the salvation that he ultimately offers. We work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, says Paul. We work it out when we turn to the source in Jesus as is Christ, the Son of God. I spend a lot of time in my preaching and teaching emphasizing how much the initiative for grace lies with God and the, and the choice to touch us is something that comes from God. But this text reminds us that there is a human responsibility a human capacity and ability to turn to God. I don't think any of you slept through the anthem a minute ago. I didn't. Listen to the, to the last words, the last several lines of it. I think they're probably printed in your bulletin. Increase our faith and our love, that we may know the hope and peace from which thy presence flow. O Christ, whom now beneath a veil we see, 
may what we thirst for, what we turn to Christ for, soon our portion be. To gaze on the unveiled, to see thy face, the vision of thy glory and thy grace. These words capture that part of being a Christian is turning to the source of our faith, Jesus Christ, and doing that of our own will and our own volition. That is in this text. Now, a second way of understanding this episode is to say that as Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem to face death, the people he encounters along the way, he, people he encounters along the way are often more on the margins of society and they seem to intuitively grasp who he is better actually than his disciples do. Thus, in consecutive order, starting with this event, Jesus has positive encounters with this Samaritan leper, with infants and children, with a blind beggar, with a tax collector named Zacchaeus, and with a widow at the temple who is offering her last coin. All these respond in ways that are more faithful than his own befuddled and confused followers. When Jesus began his ministry, he announced that he had come to bring good news to the poor and release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. As his ministry is developing here in Luke, those on the margins of society, tax collectors and sinners, seem to understand, while those who were closest to him seem not to grasp the fullness of who he is. Third, and related to this, throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus portrays Samaritans in a positive light. In contrast to both Jews and Gentiles who disclaim and reject them. Further showing that not only do people who are outsiders understand Jesus, but Jesus has a particular reach and focus and place in his heart and place in his ministry for those who are outside. To expand this third point a little bit, for the past 50 or so years, one way that preachers and teachers have interpreted the Gospel of Luke is to say that in Luke, Jesus focuses on the least, the last, and the lost. That's a phrase from a disciple lesson I taught 20 years ago and 10 years ago. I think it's a phrase that was coined by the minister of Fourth Presbyterian Church in the 60s. But it's a great phrase. Who knows who its real parent is? But it embodies Jesus' focus in Luke. The least, the last, and the lost. This incident before us, when paired with many others in this gospel, reminds us that an essential aspect of being a Christian and an essential aspect of being a Christian congregation is having a special place, a special focus on people who are needy, on people who are rejected, on people who are on the margins of society, even on people who are on the margins of respectability. 
So long as one person in the world is hungry. So long as one person in the world has no shelter. So long as one person in the world lacks clothing. So long as one person in the world is not cared for with the particular malady that strikes that person. The church can never expend too much money or too much effort on mission. It is always there. While it's likely that not even the most dedicated and compassionate among us stops to aid every person we encounter who asks us for food or money, only the most doctrinaire or insensitive among us stop for no one, refuse assistance for everyone, critique those among us who do stop us. While congregations all across the world, from giant cathedrals to storefront churches, can almost always do more than they do to help the least, the last, and the lost, rare is the gathering of people who go by the name of Christ who do nothing. There is something endemic about Christian faith and about feeding the poor, the hungry, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless, healing the sick, and reaching out to the rejected. Among the four gospel writers, Luke gives this aspect of faith its most tangible voice. Jesus seeing and healing not one, not two, but ten lepers. Luke by telling us, Jesus by doing it, reminds us of the central role in the Christian faith for caring for the least, the last, and the lost. Now my guess is that for most everyone in this congregation, this statement is more a reminder than a new idea, more a refresher course than a new subject. But even with so much in this incident that is reminder, as I studied this passage this time around, I did find something in it that was new to me. And that's what I want to share with you in the re remainder of the sermon. As Luke presents this incident, he has a subtle but undeniable emphasis on the importance of sight. Jesus sees the lepers. He tells them to show themselves to the priest that they may be seen. And then when the one leper sees that he is healed, it is then that he turns back praising and glorifying God. It is when the leper sees that he is healed that he is able to worship. I want us to think about this for a minute. And I want you to think about your own life or about people that are close to you. Have you ever been so bleak about the world or about your life or both that you feel absolutely no connection 
with God. Have you ever been so angry with the world, with somebody in it, with God, that it is impossible for you to feel a connection with God? Have you ever been trapped, estranged? It is hard to feel any kind of connection with God. It is hard to have any sense of worship. It is hard to sing a hymn, to give voice to a prayer, to sit through a sermon, to greet someone in a friendly way at the door, to sit with someone next in the pew when you are dispirited to such a degree as this. It is nearly impossible to sing what a friend we have in Jesus when you don't feel you have a friend in your family, in your life, in your work, in your association with friends, in an institution or an activity or a group of people to whom you have turned for friendship before. It is hard to worship when we're this alone. But when the door creaks slightly ajar, when the ray of sun begins to peek through the window shade, when we can see, sense, or feel that we are ever slightly so better, then a space begins to open in our heart in which and through which we can worship. When the leper sees that he is healed, he then turns and praises God. Sight leads to worship. I shared with you recently that I have been rereading short stories of Ernest Hemingway that I first read in college. One is called Big Two-Hearted River, Part 1. It is part of the Nick Adams stories, a series in which Nick Adams, a young man home from World War I, yearns for healing and relief from all that he has seen in the war. The story begins with Nick getting off a train in Sini, a village on the upper peninsula of Michigan that has been home to him. The train went up the track out of sight around one of the hills of burnt timber. Nick sat down on the bundle of canvas and bedding that the baggage man had pitched out of the door of the baggage car. There was no town, nothing but the rails and the burned over country. The 13 saloons that had once lined the street of Sini had left not a trace. The foundations of the Mansion Hotel stuck up above the ground. The stone was chipped and split by the fire. 
it was all that was left of the town of Simi. Even the surface had been burned off the ground. Nick walked down the railroad track to the bridge over the river. The river was there. It swirled against the log spiles of the bridge. Nick looked down into the clear brown water, colored from the pebbly bottom, and he watched the trout keeping themselves themselves steady in the current with wavering fins. As he watched the trout, they changed their positions by quick angles, only to hold steady in the fast water again. It had been a long time since Nick looked into the water and had seen trout. They were very satisfactory. Nick's heart tightened as the trout moved. He felt all the old feeling. He was happy. Sini was burned. The country was burned over and changed. But it did not matter. It could not all be burned. When the leper saw that he was healed, he turned back praising God in a loud voice. Sight leads to worship. Whenever we have a baptism scheduled for worship, whichever minister is doing the baptism emails members on the session to try to find an elder that uh, can help us with the baptism as Patty did today. I happen to have two baptisms today, one at this service and one at the earlier service. It was a holiday weekend. Uh, Friday morning, I got around to emailing, looking for session members, and I got, I don't think there's a session member here today. (laughs) I couldn't find an elder. Some said, no, I'm going to be out of town. Some just didn't answer. Some probably hadn't seen their email. But anyway... Within about an hour, the first response I got, almost immediate, was from Matt Viser. Now, as some of you know, Matt is a reporter for the Boston Globe who works in the Washington Bureau. And ever since I've known him, he has basically done nothing but cover presidential campaigns. His answer to my email, I can't, he said, I'll be en route to St. Louis for an evening of world-class bickering, (laughs) also known as the second presidential debate. Now, Matt's response came even before the events of the last 36 or 40 hours, but it reflects sardonically a sadness that most of us feel about the state of political discourse in our nation. Matt was expressing a frustration common to all of us. 
When I've been at my lowest points over the past year or so about the state of our politics, I have been lifted from time to time by a few facts that different writers or columnists have brought to my awareness. One such article I read a few weeks ago, it was entitled, The Best News You Don't Know. Nicholas Kristof pointed out that contrary to our bleak assumptions, the number of people across the world living in extreme poverty has tumbled by half, by half in two decades. The number of small children dying has dropped by a similar proportion. That is, six million lives a year saved by vaccines, breastfeeding promotion, pneumonia medication, and other treatments. As recently as 1981, Christoph adds, 1981, 44% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. Today it is 10% and continuing to shrink. He writes, for the entire history of the human species until the 1960s, a majority of adults were illiterate. Now, 85% of adults in the world can read and write. Christoph then concludes, in a moment, we can and we will return to urgent needs worldwide, from war to climate change to refugees. But first, he says, Let's pause for a nanosecond of silence to acknowledge the greatest gains in human history in the course of our lifetimes. A nanosecond of silence. That sounds like a secular instinct to worship. When the leper saw that some of the news was good, he glorified God. 